Caloundra City Private School is an independent, non-denominational school located in Pelican Waters on the Sunshine Coast. The mantra for our school is Every Student Matters. We aim for every child to be confident, resilient, organised, persistent and social in all aspects of their lives in and out of the classroom. This podcast series is designed to share valuable insights from academic leaders on current educational research and perspectives as we all strive to help our young people reach their potential in today's ever-changing world. Well, as we all know, today's teens love using their mobile phones to communicate, sending multiple text messages every day to communicate with others. Yet, what impact is texting having on the literacy skills of today's children and teenagers? Is their ability to read and write correctly being negatively impacted, or can our students actually benefit from this new way of communicating? My guest today is Dr. Nina Kemp, who is a senior lecturer in the Division of Psychology in the School of Medicine at the University of Tasmania. Her research focuses on the acquisition, development and use of spoken and written language from infancy to adulthood, and she has a particular interest in the written language of digital communication. More generally, she's interested in children's cognitive development. Well, it's a beautiful morning here in the historic city of Hobart, and I've travelled to the University of Tasmania, the Sandy Bay campus, to interview a highly accomplished academic, Dr Nina Kemp. Dr Kemp, thanks for joining me. Thank you. As an English teacher myself, I'm very interested in hearing about your research into texting and language development. What prompted your research into this relationship between mobile phone messaging and literacy? I'd been doing research for a number of years on children's reading and spelling development and as I saw more and more children using mobile phones and seeing the the way that they wrote their text messages, I started to wonder how this might be affecting their spelling and reading and a few people started asking me as well, they knew I did research in this area and so I said I'll have a look and at that point there wasn't actually anything published on children's reading and writing and their mobile phone texting use at all. And so that's what prompted me to start looking at that. And at the same time as I looked at that, a number of other people around the world also started looking. We'll get to your findings shortly, but um, with the increased use of mobile phones by our teenagers, there's a general concern that the popular use of text message abbreviations or textisms is masking or even causing literacy problems in children and teens. Is this true? It's certainly something that a lot of people have been and continue to be worried about when you see newspaper headlines, especially from the past when it it first began to take off. It uses words like ruin and changing our language and ruining English. It's very dramatic language. But in fact, when you start looking at it, it doesn't seem like this is true at all. And I can go into more detail on that soon. But overall, the concerns and worries that people have, especially in the popular media, actually seem to be unfounded. Was that surprising to you? Yes, it was surprising to me. I must admit that I saw the way that text messages were being written and now instant messaging, um, Facebook, any, anything else where you're writing in this way. I saw that style of writing and I did think this has got to be making young people write in a different way in general. And so when I started doing this research, I did go in with an expectation, but 
when you do something scientific and you set some up, something up properly and you look at the results, you, you change your mind. You say, all right, then this is what the data are telling me and it's not what I expected. I don't think you're alone in that. I think a lot of parents and indeed English teachers probably held that concern. Mm. That's why your results are really quite interesting. Um, let's actually look at what messaging is. So you use the terms textism and textees. Can you define those for us? Yes, so these, there's been various words used, but the ones that the research area seems to be converging on are textisms, uh, individual, usually abbreviations, sometimes elongations of words. So when you might use TXT for text or MSG for message. So something where you're changing a word into a textism. And then the broader term that people have used is textees, like Chinese or Japanese or Javanese. So it's like a language form that people use to describe the way people write, not just text messages now, obviously, but anything digital, anything in that abbreviated or kind of fun, casual language style. Why were these textisms created? What was the purpose? They have a longer history than most of us think about, but people who were using the internet in the very early days, when there was a smaller community of people writing on message boards and so forth, it was just um, for brevity, to keep things shorter, for, for quickness, and also to kind of show that they were part of this special community. People have their own slang in all kinds of language communities. But then when people started to use um, mobile phones more generally, they had very small screens, they had character limits, and people were paying per text. People would do a lot to reduce the number of characters that they were using to save space and to save time and to save money because in terms of time you were pressing one, two or three or even four times on each key to make that letter come up. So that's where it really started and I think that kind of became entrenched then. This is how I write text messages. So even now when we have phones with bigger screens you probably have a monthly plan so you're not paying per message and you don't need to double or triple press on keys anymore. There's not that much of a need to, to write in this way anymore but people uh, because that's what you do on a phone and also it's no longer so much reducing the number of characters it's having fun with language it's putting in emoticons it's putting in funny spellings or um, abbreviations like lol not for uh, reducing characters but for being a bit fun do you find that different age groups use it more heavily than others yes there seems to be a, a big spike around um, early teenagers when you're more able to manipulate language so your reading and spelling skills are fluent enough that you can play with language and it's fun it's trendy it's kind of the age when you do a lot of new things um and i mean some of them might be what parents might consider bad things but some of them are things like i don't know wearing particular jewelry or saying particular words or using particular new things that you go through in that early teenage period and then when people get older they start to think well that was unsophisticated or that's when I was young and as you get into adulthood you kind of leave those things behind you. One of the issues you identified is not so much the composing of the message using textisms rather the deciphering of the message by the recipient. Can you talk to that for us? Yes I think this is something that's reduced in recent years but when it first became popular to write text messages and to use these abbreviations people went a bit crazy on them so people were making up all kinds of abbreviations in a very unstandardized way there wasn't a dictionary of ways to reduce the word tomorrow or, or whatever and so 
a lot of people actually couldn't understand what their friends were writing to them and then they'd have to write back and say what did you mean by that and then their friends would have to explain and so it ended up being a little bit meaningless to reduce the time you spent if it, if it required more. Do you find that that still exists with the older generation receiving messages from the younger generation perhaps? Yes, but actually it's the other way around. Right. So the university students I teach all tell me, oh, oh no, I don't do that anymore. That's so two years ago, but my mum does it. So it seems that 20 year old students' mothers are the most common users of these abbreviations and their, their university student aged children say, oh gosh, I can't believe you wrote that. No one does that anymore. But it seems to have, it's kind of like older people adopting a younger person's fashion that the younger people have now gone beyond. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Um, so if we focus a little closer on literacy and yes. this link between using this new digital language and literacy, is the language of digital communication affecting a student's ability to spell? So that has been the big research question and that's something that's been looked at for about eight years now. And I can speak on the research that has already been published, but I just want to say at the start that that doesn't mean that's not what's happening now. This is what's been happening in the past, but it may be continuing to change. But researchers, teachers, parents, educators have all been worried that if you see too many examples of something being misspelt, whether deliberately or not, that's going to affect your understanding of, or your knowledge of how you should spell it. And so that's what researchers have been looking at. But in fact, at least until recently, and we don't know about right now because it always takes a while to do the research, the children, especially less so the older teens and adults, but the children who use the most textisms or these text abbreviations or elongations or emoticons, the children who use the most of those were the ones who are actually better at reading and spelling. And that's not so surprising if you think about it as just another use of language. People who are good at using language in one way are probably going to be the quick ones to adapt it in another. So they're the ones who can think of new ways of writing abbreviations and who are good at working out maybe what their friends have written to them. So that's one surprising thing. It's the kids who are good at reading and spelling who are good at these um, abbreviations. Older teenagers and adults, there doesn't seem to be any relationship and that's probably because their reading and spelling skills were already established before they started texting a lot. And then you're not going to forget how to spell message if you write it MSG a lot, or you're not going to forget how to write that's funny if you use LOL instead. So if you've been reading and writing long enough, those skills are so entrenched that you're not going to start forgetting how to spell once you see words written in a shortened way. And one other thing is that the words you abbreviate in text messages are usually the very common and simple words. You don't go abbreviating words like unnecessarily or acknowledgement or, or words which are long and diff typically difficult to spell. They're not the ones that you do end up abbreviating. So I think that's why we don't see this negative effect on spelling. Is there a negative effect on, this, on the ability of children who do struggle with literacy though? That's something that hasn't had enough research and that's something I've started to look at. A few people have looked at and what they find is children who struggle with literacy anyway just find it harder to write these messages and read them just because it's another form of reading and writing. So it takes them a bit longer and it's a bit harder for them to think of new ways of spelling words. If you already can't remember how to spell something, 
you don't want to be then thinking up a fun new way of spelling it. And also if your friends write to you in a certain way that's new, maybe you can't decipher it. But the flip side of that is that kids who don't like reading and writing, who typically would have avoided it, they actually end up having more practice with it because they're, they're having to. If your friends are writing on Facebook or they're posting things to invite you to things or there's a group conversation online, it actually means that these children are being exposed to reading and writing more than they would have been in the past and it actually seems to be increasing some children's ability to read and write. So it can actually be beneficial in that way? Yes for younger children, not by the time you get to high school age, then it doesn't seem to make any difference, but kids who are still learning to read and write, who in the past probably would have avoided it, but gone and done other things, which you may think are actually better, like playing outside or running around and doing some exercise. You know, it depends on what you're focusing on, but it does mean that more of those children are, are doing more reading and writing. Incorrect grammar, punctuation, mm -hmm. capitalisation, spelling, it seems acceptable in this context. Is this a good thing? If everyone agrees that it's acceptable in that context and keeps that context separate from formal writing, then I think that's okay. It's just like we have different registers of, of speaking. It's okay to speak informally with your friends, but formally giving an interview or a lecture or speaking with grandparents if that if that's how you speak to them so there's nothing wrong with speaking at different levels in that way there's nothing wrong with writing in different ways to suit the the medium or the the way you're interacting as long as you can see that it's separate as long as you don't then go into your school exam or a school test or an assignment and think it's okay to write like that that's when it becomes less of a good thing and that's in, often the concern is uh, educators, especially English teachers, don't want to see this new digital language coming into the classroom when, when students pick up a pen and they're required to write a piece of writing using traditional English. Do you find that they're able to understand the difference, differences in context? That's a really good question. When we've asked primary school and high school students in the past, they really understand it, at least when you ask them, they laugh. If you say, if you give them a, say, a, a, an inter internet or digital message written in this textese language and say, would that be okay to hand into your teacher? They laugh and say, no, that's not how you write for your teacher. Or older students would say, no, that wouldn't be appropriate. So they do seem to know it, just as if you said to them, see what you're wearing now, hoodie and track pants, would you wear that to a wedding? They know that it's not right and they kind of laugh. There are a lot of anecdotal reports about students writing in this way in exams, but there's not very much research. And the one bit of research that I've been involved in is with a PhD student who worked with me, Abby Grace, and she had worked on looking at, she looked at half a million words of exam answers here at the University of Tasmania. And it was less than 1% of the words, it was 0.004% or something of the words were, were kind of textese words. So these are university students, not high school students, but they knew not to write like that in an exam. Do high school students? I don't it? know. Mm. There's a couple of research projects that suggest they do, but it's only asking teachers what they think and the teachers say, oh yes, quite a few of them do that. But when you actually go and look at the number of words, it's unusual to see that many. I think people remember particular examples and say, oh gosh, look at that. But then if you think 
for that one student, perhaps there were a hundred others who didn't do it at all. So that's that's something that does need to be looked at. The thing I find that comes in, speaking of anecdotal evidence, is the lowercase i. Yes. That, that seems to be quite a common error. I don't know if that's related to text messaging. No, though. it is. It definitely is because there's no advantage when you're handwriting to doing a small i. It's only a time saver and effort saver digitally because when you're writing, there's no reason at all. I've been thinking about this one. I think that's something that might start to change and in fact the use of capitalisation in general. So as I say, so far we haven't seen this, but I wonder as more kids come through having seen almost as much digital writing as formal writing on paper or whatever, I wonder if that will change. I wonder if our capital I will be disappeared in, the, in our lifetimes. <laughs> I must admit though, capitalisation and punctuation tend to be two of the areas that need work mm, in our mm. high school students. Is this relevant to your research? Yes, it's relevant. I can't give a, a clear answer yet because the research hasn't been done on whether texting is definitely affecting that. Although I've done some research with a colleague at the University of Coventry in England, Claire Wood, and we found absolutely no relationship between primary school, high school and university students' capitalisation and in, in their texts and their spelling ability. So this, it wasn't that people who use no capitals are poor spellers. Because what you can't distinguish is people who don't know about capitals, so don't use them, and people who think, I know it should have a capital, I'm in a rush, they'll know what I'm talking about, I'm just not going to put it in. They're often the smartest people, smartest, the best spellers, I ought to say. And so they're the ones who are making decisions based on efficiency, who are also good spellers. Dr Kemp, does gender play a role in your research? I do always look at the differences between the male and female participants just out of interest and what I've been finding in my research with e which echoes that which other people have done around the world is that females in general, whether they're girls or women, tend to use more of these abbreviations than males do. But they also write more words, send more messages, but even as a proportion of the, the number of words they use, they use more textisms and usually more emoticons and that kind of reflects general differences it sounds like a stereotype but it's based on on real differences women tend to talk more than men use more words than men and express more emotions than men in their spoken language and so I think this is just a reflection in their written language. The relationship between girls using abbreviations more often than boys is this reflected in the literacy skills of boys and girls? In general, girls are slightly better at literacy skills than boys are, and of course this isn't the case for any individual girl or boy, but overall females are slightly better at language-based tasks, whether speaking or verbal fluency, like how fluently you can speak, or spelling or reading. Overall they're a bit better than boys, so it's not surprising that we see these small differences in the use of textisms as well. Generally, what can teenagers do to ensure their traditional English language skills don't suffer as a result of using this new digital language of communication? I think the most important thing is just make sure that you're exposed to formal written language at least as much as you expose yourself to this more informal written language. So obviously lots of teenagers are spending a lot of time online or on their phones or both looking at informal casual written language of their friends or people whose work they might be reading 
written with small letters, not uppercase letters and emoticons and abbreviations and so forth. Just make sure you also read novels or even magazines or newspapers or more formal online material that is written in standard English just to keep up that exposure to it and so you're not only seeing things written in casual English. And equally what can parents do to help their um, sons and daughters? I think just encouraging that reading of formal English and again it doesn't need to be reading War and Peace or anything even magazines are written in formal English still you don't see small i or missing full stops or emoticons for full stops in, in magazines or anything so and also just talking about it just reminding their sons and daughters most of whom won't need reminding but still that discussion about you know how you write to your friends or just remembering you don't write like that at school just that discussion of the different levels of formality of writing. If we look at the English language broadly do you think that the English language will change as a result of digital technology? Formal English language, I mean? That's a difficult one and I think it's something we can still only speculate on. But written English does change. It changes very slowly compared to spoken English, more at the level of centuries than, than years or decades. But I think over a couple more centuries, perhaps what we see today as standard or formal English might converge more with informal or casual English and I think we might see perhaps the reduction in the use of capital letters because they're not actually essential for understanding apart from a couple of tiny little things like whether you're saying Polish or Polish or something but most of the time you don't need them. So I think over time it will change but whether that's a problem or not is in the eye of well, the, yeah, the, eye of the, the reader because is it now wrong that we don't write in the same way as Shakespeare wrote in terms of spelling. You know, it's not good or bad, it's just language change and that's what happens. What's your opinion though? Do you think it's good or bad? I suppose my natural instinct as a someone who researches language and someone who's pedantic is to see change in the short term as bad but then having to take a step back and remind myself that language change is never bad unless it's loss of vocabulary perhaps or an inability to express yourself properly but otherwise it's just what language does and otherwise you could say it's a terrible thing that we're not speaking the same as people 200 or 400 or 600 years ago but, but that's what happens. So we need to keep up with the times, change with the times if yes, you Yes, like. but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that therefore we should abandon all our structures of, of written formal English because it's a a big beautiful language with more words than any other language in the world. Probably simpler grammatical rules, there aren't that many of them and the way we write at the moment does capture what we need to say so I wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate abandoning capital letters and, and expressions of emotion for emoticons quite yet. You say that the English language is extensive, is it one of the most difficult languages to learn? Um, I don't think it's very difficult to learn spoken English compared to many other languages because it doesn't have different verb endings like if you're trying to learn many European languages you have to learn different verb endings you have to learn different cases so if you're giving something to someone or saying something directly you have to change it doesn't have gender to learn so it, it's easier for spoken language but in terms of reading and writing it is the most difficult of the 
alphabetical writing systems to learn. So it takes children learning English much longer to learn to read and write than children learning any other alphabet in the world. Why is that? Because <laughs> we've got such an inconsistent spelling system and that's because people spoke lots of different dialects of English but then the printing press was invented and it kind of froze a lot of spellings and pronunciation continued to change and then dictionaries were invented and that kind of froze more spellings. So we still have a lot of words written how they used to be pronounced and we no longer pronounce them that way. And there's a, just a whole hodgepodge of different word origins all represented in one spelling system. Ideally an alphabet means one sound for each letter. If you learn Finnish or Italian or Croatian or Serbian, you can learn to read and write if you're an adult in two days. You just learn 20 something correspondences between symbols on the page and sounds and you've learned to read and write. English has so many inconsistencies that it takes years and years for kids to learn them compared to any other alphabetical language. So that's fascinating. Well done, everyone learning English. It's really hard <laughs> to read and write, just easier to speak. <laughs> Dr. Kemp, you said that the English language is a hodgepodge of, you know, various sounds. Why is that? I think there's just so many influences in it. Words came from a lot of languages, but then people fiddled around with the spelling of English for a very long time. So academics who wanted to show that we should be aware that words came from the Latin originally would insert Latin letters back into words. So words like debt, which used to be spelt D-E-T-T-E, they wanted to show that Latin root of it coming from something to do with debit. And so they'd put the B back in. Now we have to spell debt with a B in it. Um, words like receipt, which used to just have a T at the end, they wanted to show that Latin root and show that it was related to words like receptacle. And so they'd put the P back into receipt. Medieval monks who were writing out manuscripts, if they wanted their manuscript to nicely fit from the left hand to the right hand of the page. Nowadays we press fully justify on our Word document and it just does it for us. What they would do was if they had a little bit of space left they hadn't planned on, they'd just put an E on the end of the word just to make it fit in there properly. And so now we have some words with an E on the end. Um, some other words, there was a fashion for a while for writing in kind of pointy writing and so a U and a V would end up looking quite similar because it was fashionable to instead of have, having rounded letters to do pointy ones but that meant that if you had U's and V's and N's all in a row sometimes it was very difficult to read the word because it was all a whole lot of little spikes and so often they'd change the letter U into an O to make that easier to read and for that reason we have a whole lot of words like oven and love and dove where it's actually an R sound but we spell it with O because it used to be a U and a V next to each other and it was too hard to see. So we just have these really silly spellings that just came from the kind of changes that people made. Well given that you really have to take your hat off to early childhood teachers and primary teachers of English. They face a great challenge there in teaching this language of ours. They really do and when you're a fluent reader and writer as teachers are it's actually quite difficult to step back and think about the sounds of language and children learning to read are very good at hearing the sounds and for us when we look at the word love we don't actually think oh it's a bit strange that there's an O there that's just how you spell it but when a child makes a spelling mistake and actually spells something as it sounds, we should be praising them for that bit, but not just letting them keep going, writing it wrongly, obviously, but telling them that actually sometimes writing is tricky 
sometimes it's not what we think and just acknowledging to the child that they've had a good go because children often write things exactly as they sound and we're so good at reading and writing that we forget that actually that's a really good attempt at that word. Yes, because it is difficult for children to learn how to spell the English language. Yes, and, and often we don't appreciate how well they're doing really. So even things like you might say that, that this curly letter always makes a s sound and if there's two of them it's a s sound and then a child might use it to spell z but we might not remember that words like dissolve and scissors have a z sound with two s's. So there's all these little rules and patterns that we, we don't always remember that make it even harder for children to learn to read and write than we might first think. Are some children naturally better spellers than others? Yes, they do seem to be. But what that means is you just have to give more help to the ones who aren't, rather than saying, you're not a very good speller. Well, you can acknowledge that, but just giving them that bit more help to, to maybe learn some patterns that they might not have picked up themselves. How critical is the um, primary teacher's role in teaching spelling? And indeed, obviously it is critical, but indeed the techniques they use, the strategies they use to teach the language. Yeah, I think primary school is a really important part because children don't come to school with an expectation that they won't like it, or very few do. By high school, a lot of kids have decided they don't like this. If you can instill a love of reading and writing, or at least a tolerance of it, and the ability to believe you can do it earlier on, it's going to make a big difference for children. So primary school teachers are really instrumental in getting children to think that reading and writing is something they can do and giving them those tools to break words apart into their little bits, see what maybe what some word meanings are, put them back together and that really helps with spelling, not just trying to spell words all in one, but helping them see the different sections of words that they can use rules perhaps to spell. Is there a point in a child's age where changing habits of spelling becomes increasingly difficult? For example, once a student has reached grade 8 or grade 10 mm. and they're misspelling words, is that likely to change? Can you retrain them at that age? You can, but it's just going to get harder. And some of that is just about the student thinking, well, this is how good I am at spelling and, and this is my skill level, or not bothering to want to change by then because they've got this far it would be a very self-motivated student who at that point in high school said, right, I'm going to improve my spelling. So the, the young person would have to want to change as well. So it can be done. It yes, just requires, yes. again, mm. hard work. Yeah. And I've become a better speller even in adulthood. The more I learn about word origins, the more I can see, oh, that must come from that. Therefore, I'll spell it this way. I think we're always improving our spelling, aren't we? I yes. don't think we ever stop learning how to spell words. It's one of the few skills that keeps going up into old age. Most other things just go down. <laughs> but our spelling and general knowledge go up. Uh, well, that actually links to my um, the final area we'll talk about today. It's an area that remains a concern for teachers and parents, but many students would rather type their work using word processing on a laptop rather than handwrite it. And in doing so, they use spell check and grammar check. Often the results a, stu a student receives can vary dramatically. Is this use of technology negatively affecting the language and literacy development of children and teenagers? I think that's a difficult question to answer, but what we can think about is, if having that help with spelling and grammar that the computer program provides, leads the person to produce a better piece of work, is that what we should be doing for them? So that's one way of looking at it. 
if that frees them up from having to worry about their spelling and think about the next word and actually lets them express what they wanted to say, maybe that's a good thing if they can create a higher level piece of writing without worrying about the parts they find difficult. I think that the one potential danger in that is a feeling that you no longer need to worry about spelling, it's the computer's responsibility because the computer can't always tell. Say if you used a homonym wrongly and a very obvious one that no one would mix up with say write and write like w-r-i-t-e or r-i-g-h-t you can spell that correctly but you'll get the wrong one and that that's something that computer can't the computer can't fix for you and even I suppose words that people do get wrong like saying the wrong type of complement with an i instead of an e and so forth or the wrong kind of hoard like a hoard of treasure versus a hoard of people running into your city or whatever mm. so those kinds of spelling mistakes it, it can't fix and I've seen those errors personally I yes. must admit yeah they're very very common and they're the ones that you don't get picked up on if people use spell check as a spelling teacher for themselves it would be a great tool if you went oh that's not how you spell it here it is the computer's just provided it for me you could it would be really good but the thing is people don't they go oh well it's fixed it for me, I won't bother. And I must admit to my own laziness, not in spelling, because I can usually spell what I want to write, but typing children with the L and D around the wrong way, typing research with the E and A around the wrong way. I frequently do that, but I know that my computer program will, will fix it for me. So it does engender a certain laziness, I think. So students won't ho have a pen and paper next to them and write out the word five times? No, no one bothers. They just want to keep going. And, but a few people, including the PhD student I mentioned earlier, said, oh, no, I use it as a spelling lesson for myself. But she's a very motivated, pedantic kind of person and good for her. She's learnt to spell a lot more words by just learning from that computer spell check little red line. Does that actually work, writing out a word five times? How do you teach yourself how to re-spell a word? I think you use whatever works best for you and writing it out. So getting that kind of physical feeling of writing it does help and seeing it and just going over it and being conscious of it. I think just learning some way of, of doing it or making up a little rule for yourself. I even remember in grade one when I must have been a pedantic little spelling girl, I could never remember how to spell beautiful because there were all these vowels in the middle. But I just remember coming up with this strategy. It's like the word ear. You have to remember the E and the A first and then the U must be after that. So even if you think up a silly grade one strategy like that, anything you can remind yourself of or how many N's and C's and S's in unnecessarily, just thinking of some way of remembering how many there are, just say it to yourself. So the ability to spell is drawing on your memory, essentially. Yes, because you have stored words in your memory and you need to access them somehow. And whether you either write or type those letters in a certain order and that feels right, or you remember how the word should look and write it from memory, or you write it and go, oh, that's not right, and you change it till it looks right, you're matching it with that stored word in your memory. So should we see more handwriting in schools and less word processing? I think in primary school there should be a real focus on handwriting. Get it fluent, get it so entrenched that you can't ruin it by then doing a lot of typing. If you spend the first five to six years of school mainly handwriting, you're going to get that habit, that ability 
to write in that way and even just the handwriting neatness as well that physical practice because if you don't do much of that when you're a child you're certainly not going to get better at it when you're an adult at our university and I think at most other universities exams are still handwritten simply because of the physical difficulty of getting enough computers with no opportunities to cheat on them for that many students all at once we still get students to handwrite and like high school students as well they don't handwrite anymore and then twice a year or however often, however often your exams are they have to write for two hours and it's very difficult they're no longer so it's no longer so easy for them their hand physically cramps up and so but, but that's obviously not a good reason for saying you should do more handwriting for this two hours of exam later on. I just think that there are many times in life when you still need to handwrite. It does teach you that fine motor dexterity that you don't have hitting a keyboard and it really helps you with spelling development to be creating the letters one after the other rather than tapping them on a keyboard when, you, when you're first learning. It's often questioned whether handwriting is on its way out, but from your research and from what we've discussed today, handwriting certainly has a place in schools and in universities and we should be encouraging it. Do you agree? I would agree, but I'm aware that that's not a sentiment necessarily shared by everyone. And in fact, I think just in this past academic year, Finland has stopped teaching handwriting in schools. Children just learn typing. The Finns are often well ahead of other countries in, in some academic or social areas, so I don't want to just say in a blanket statement, you must learn to handwrite because clearly here's a country which has decided that that's not so important. However, Finnish is a very straightforward language to read and write, not to speak, but they just have 26 or I think 24 letters and 24 sounds for those letters and a few letter combinations. But learning to read and write Finnish is a very trivial thing compared to English. So maybe that's why they've decided they can go straight for the word processing or typing. But I think for English at least, or in my opinion at least, I think that learning to physically handwrite is still a very important skill to learn early on and to practice throughout your life. Maybe in the future, everyone will have their phone or equivalent with them all the time and write every shopping list or phone message or love note electronically. But I still think that there's really a place for writing on paper or other medium that will stay with us for a long time to come. Uh, Dr. Kemp, just to finish up today, uh, what future direction is your research taking you here in the School of Psychology? I think in this area of digital communication, I've looked a lot at the actual spelling, the way people write the words, but what I'd like to look more at is how that affects the reader. So, for example, if you're writing to a friend or you're writing for a job interview application or you're writing electronically in any other way, or say to a teacher or a lecturer, how does the recipient of your message judge you or feel about the way that you write? Because it's one thing to write informally to everyone, but if you don't realise that writing informally or casually or spelling with textisms can have a detrimental effect upon you, then some people are going to be disadvantaged. So kids who don't get the chance to read a lot of formal English, if they think it's okay to write to their teacher or lecturer or eventually a potential employer, if they don't know that you shouldn't use textees in those contexts, what happens if they miss out on a job, get a poorer mark or, or so forth because of how they've written? So looking at 
how different people perceive the way they're written too, because I think that that's an important social implication that's also here to stay as more and more people write in a great variety of ways to different people. Well, Dr. Kemp, it's been a fascinating interview and we could certainly talk more, um, but I do appreciate your time today, especially because you are on maternity leave. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. And I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Nina Kemp from the University of Tasmania. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Kemp's research, follow the links provided in the transcript of this podcast on the CCPS website or check the SoundCloud episode description. This podcast was produced by Tracy Burton, featuring music by Paul Cusick. Thanks for listening.